Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, so, so much has happened since we last spoke on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're all tied together, actually. Maybe they could all be um, considered synonymous. I lost my voice immediately after we recorded and also had the stomach bug work its way through our house, which was a whole lot of fun. Um, that's separate issue, I guess. I mostly have my voice back. So if I have some moments, um, just bear with me. Show me a little bit of grace. We're doing what we can. Uh, DJ Durkin got yet another defensive coordinator job in the SEC, his fourth different one, um, if you mm-hmm. include Florida, Florida job as well. I thought that was what we were going to talk about today. But then we found out a couple of things that will uh, be discussed um, at length today. Tennessee and the NCAA basically just decided, let's take off the gloves. Let's publicly shame each other to death over NIL rules. And Tennessee Chancellor Dondi Plowman basically went scorched earth on the NCAA, which should really now have all of college football in Tennessee's corner in this strange universe that we have created where it's kind of like all of these big time college football programs saying that the NCAA is incompetent and didn't set rules like it probably should have. And maybe this is going to lead to a breakaway with the lawsuit that's going on. We had all of that unfold this week. First off, the typical NCAA move to try to make an example out of the University of Tennessee. If there was one beehive in all of college football that I would never like to hit with a bat it is the University of Tennessee. And I say that respectfully. That's why I'm very rarely mean the all on here. Uh, that is such a misstep and very typical of that. <laughs> Buddy, Tennessee has alignment to organize a way to fire Jeremy Pruitt with cause. And I am sitting here telling you that they shot the moon and that is not the, the program to, to go after. And that, you know, that, that gets into the entire Nico Yamaleava, um, you know, like his NIL benefits. That's what New York Times reported was at the root of all this stuff. And, and interestingly enough, that we had all that discussion about Nico earlier in the week. And then all of this comes out right after that happens. I definitely didn't jinx it. Um, but so all that happens. And then, oh, by the way, little eh, Wednesday night news dump, Jeff Hathley, Boston College coach, decided to um, just say, you know, well, I have a power five head coaching job when I can go be the defensive coordinator in the NFL for a franchise that convinces all of its fans that they actually own the team. And it's definitely not a Ponzi scheme. Um, not a Ponzi scheme, just a massive scam. If there are Packer fans listening to this, congratulations on your ownership and your piece of paper that you hang proudly. Um, but Jeff Hathley, the man that you hired Packer fans with your ownership, uh, has a lot of people in college football scratching their heads going, huh, this could be a thing. Maybe I'm going to, here's what we'll try and do today. I'm going to try and find a way to weave all of these things together while doing so with a voice that is, 75% of the way back. Is that, does that sound good? Yeah. And and I'll say this just off the top because I know we'll, we'll be talking about it, but we're getting at a point with college football where it is sadly mirroring the NBA. Every time you guys read a tweet or like a piece of information that's good, just think to yourself, who is putting out this information? Who is in control of this narrative? Because the way that was approached uh, with Halfley was like, well, you know, college isn't about the kids anymore. Like that was pretty much the official statement it was like, he's grown tired of like modern college football. It's like, buddy, you're, that's a funny way to tell these kids you're leaving them behind. Basically. It's like, Hey, like to, to get out in front of him and be like, well, you know, you just can't, what are you going to do? It's like, no dude, just stand out in front of him and be like, I made a decision as a grown man. That's all I'm going to say for it for now. 
to do that on the last day of January with all of this mm-hmm. this hay in in the barn uh, is is a wild thing to process. And there's you know depending on who you talk to, there's uh, some discussions about Jeff Halfley and his future near the end of the season. Even though if you dig into the history of Boston College football, you realize that their ceiling is like seven seven wins, and that's outside of Matty Ice and, and whatnot, which we'll get into some of that as well. Um, but just just a strange week in college football that all kind of somehow feels a little bit related. We have a great show ahead. Uh, Billy Lucci is going to join us to talk about the Jimbo fallout. He has great, great insight on all the things that went down with that, the, the way that it all was played out with Stoops, how this buyout is going to look with Jimbo. Uh, we talk about Mike Elko, the things that he's done so far, Connor Wigman discussion as well. And then we're going to close with the jersey contest because your boy is rocking a throwback Saquon Barkley jersey. So we'll dig into mm-hmm. the discussion behind that. But first, Will, the real concern for coaches in college football is this. Since the national championship, we have had three different power five coaches, at least, yeah, three different power five coaches, either step down retirement or leave for the NFL. Saban retired at age 72. Harbaugh went back to the NFL and now Jeff Halfley has decided that he would rather be an NFL defensive coordinator than continue to coach a Boston college team that, as you mentioned, the ceiling is very, very limited. They haven't had an eight win season since 2009. If Mm -hmm. you look at Halfley and Harbaugh, you might think that college football is in jeopardy of losing all of its coaches to the NFL. And that is going to become the new norm. I agree with the the whole like quality of life discussion that we've talked about. It, it's just, it's different in the NFL right now. And I bet plenty of college coaches will look at some of these guys that they know very well that are in the NFL and go, wow, I would much rather have that in the middle of the summer when I'm instead hosting guys on official visits or I'm texting with recruits during the dead period while I'm supposed to be on vacation. That stuff, I totally understand. I believe there is legitimate intrigue with that and it relates directly to the quality of life argument. At the same time, I do not think that losing elite coaches to the NFL is about to become the norm like it was, oh, I don't know, like the 2000s, like the 2000s when we had Steve Spurrier, Nick Saban, Mm -hmm. Pete Carroll, all willingly leave the college game for NFL head coaching jobs. That all happened during that decade. All of them, I would argue, had different reasons. All of them had different levels of success in the NFL. If you include Pete Carroll's second time going to the NFL, Jim Harbaugh's second time going to the NFL. I believe that there are 14 instances in the 21st century of a college coach leaving for an NFL head coaching job. And that is also actually including Urban Meyer, who took two years off before basically just trying to tank the Jags. From what I can tell, that's the way that it played out. In the 14 playoff era, though, Cliff Kingsbury, Matt Rule, Jim Harbaugh, those are the only ones who went directly from college to the NFL. And it's weird to even include Kingsbury in that category because he was fired at Texas Tech before. Yeah, it was like the, a, that was the classic mutual, like, but that was more of like, get the heck out of here. It wasn't like mutual, we're both happy. It's like, we're both unhappy, actually. Yeah, we, we need to see other people right now. Uh, this, is, this is not going to work. And then obviously we know the situation with Harbaugh, very one-of-one situation. The NCAA is coming down on him, coming down on Michigan. He'd already been a good NFL head coach, so it's a little bit different. And then Matt Rule went from Baylor to an NFL job, which was a little bit Shiano-esque with the Rutgers to the Tampa Bay Bucks transition. And then we know that obviously Matt Rule returned after it flamed out in a hurry. 
in the NFL world where those circles are really tight, really tight, and those jobs are extremely difficult to get, I'm not worried about this mass exodus of great power five head coaches reverting back to the Spurrier, Saban type moves. That's not my concern. And while I do think that plenty of coordinators at the college level in very good standing could opt for the NFL, uh, a, a Jesse Minter, as we saw with the Harbaugh situation, Mike McDonald was another one, TBD on Liam Cohen, who's interviewed for all of these different coordinator jobs and has basically been in the news for the last three weeks. I've been like, am I going to have my doppelganger when I go up to Lexington in a couple of weeks? I don't know. We'll see. I believe that coordinators still like though, those receivers need to get out there and be catching balls right now. I'm not dealing with another year. You guys just dropping these buddies. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, if you, if you guys had just had a higher catch rate, that's all I'm asking for. Maybe I'd stick around. No, then but we'd all be happy. Okay. Help me uh, help you. Seriously. I, I think college coordinators are a bit more replaceable. And if that ends up becoming more of the norm of college DC goes to NFL DC job. Okay. So be it. I understand it. Even if we get some of the Brian Johnson cases of the world where Brian Johnson was in good standing at Florida, he's the offensive coordinator for Dan Mullen. And then all of a sudden he decides I'm going to go be the quarterback's coach with the Eagles. Even if we get some situations like that, that make us go, huh, that's not ideal. It's still assistant jobs, and assistants are much more replaceable. They are meant to be replaced. The bigger question is about coaches. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about how quickly we're about to start cycling through college coaches who have had enough of this era of college football. Retirement, a nice media salary with a seasonal job. I fear that that lifestyle is going to start attracting power five coaches in good standing in ways that it did not before the 2020s, the NIL, the transfer portal era began. And if you tell me that money is the great motivator and it'll keep people in these jobs, I'll agree with you to a certain extent. The difference between now versus 20 years ago is that if you're a power five head coach for four years, there's a good chance that you're making at least $20 million off that contract, right? Mm-hmm. We and just make it four years now. Correct. But actually, even if you don't, because your buyout will still be there, you're not signing yep. a power five head coaching job. That's less than $20 million. Like in this day and age with the length of these contracts, that money is pretty much going to be there. The second you sign on the dotted line, unless you do something to mess it up or you get fired with cause that money is basically yours. We just concluded. Yep. And that's, a- that's a good note though, because once they sign that contract, they then acquire the power, right? Because it's like, Hey, best case scenario for you right now is signing a huge check for me. Kind of like the Jimbo situation where we all knew he was not going to work there for two or three years. And it was like, well, we're just running out the clock on this one. Like That's, that's essentially what it becomes. And that, that is mm-hmm. the buyout era, something that we've dug into um, a lot. And there are a lot of different ramifications of that. One of which we're seeing play out right now. I mean, think about this. We just concluded a season in which half of the SEC coaches made at least $9 million. That is crazy. Yeah. Inflation aside, and we can get we can talk about inflation until we're blue in the face. <laughs> but inflation aside, when Les Miles replaced Nick Saban at a coveted job like LSU twenty years ago, he was making about a quarter of that, two point three million bucks. And Les Miles is at that time a Power Five head coach that was technically poached from Oklahoma State. That is a big time salary. What we have done in the media rights era is we have created a profession that demands more than ever from head coaches while giving them life-changing money in ways that we never have. 
Okay. And so you might think that the market and the demand to get one of these jobs has never been greater, which look is, is true to a certain extent, but the way that some of these guys are wired, they get in there and they're not worried about the year round calendar. They have the motor to be able to do this at a specific time in their life. They're adapting. They're not dying in this new era of the sport with the portal with NIL, but we're still dealing with human beings who have limits and you cannot sprint a marathon. I've thought about this in my professional life, Will, and I'm sure that you've you've dealt with similar things because we, we talk about this stuff a lot and th this this dilemma that you've gone through about, you know, quality of life or salary, all these different things. I have a job right now that I love. OK, I'm, I'm talking to you because I love this job. I truly do. And while I, you know, like everybody else, I have my own things that come up and I'm like, hey, I'm frustrated with this and frustrated with that. There is a reason that I'm doing this for the same company that took a chance on me when I was a 25 year old living in central Nebraska. Okay. Mm -hmm. If my boss has told me, Connor, we've got a new role for you. You're going to do exactly what you're currently doing, but instead of having a daily column, which I do a twice a week podcast, which I do doing radio, video, TV, whatever else you asked me to do, which that's all part of my responsibilities. We're going to take it up a notch. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you two columns a day. You're going to do a daily podcast. We want you to break news and become our version of Pete Thamel, Bruce, Bruce Feldman. These, these guys who are, you know, heavy hitters, you know, Chris Lowe, the, these people who are makers and shakers in this, in this business. And you're going to travel every week in a college football season. You're going to do all these things. We're going to pay you $500,000 a year. Get to work. I know this is unpopular, but hear me out. Okay. I am sure that plenty of people listening to that job description are like, buddy, that is a dream that I would kill mm -hmm. for all of these things that you get to do. That is, that's ideal, man. You just, you just hit the lottery. And at a certain point in my life, I'm right there with you. I'm like, sign me up. But, but what, do, what do we need to do to get this started right now? Like, let's, let's sign the contract. Let's, let's go. But I'm going to be honest. Part of me would want to do that for two to three years, go as hard as I possibly could, set my, set my family up with a better life, and then just figure it out from there. Just mm -hmm. figure it out from there. But zero part of me would sign up for a lifetime of that. No way. Mm -mm. I know having been doing this job since 2015, that those duties that were just outlined would make this job unsustainable. And I'm not like trying to sit here and pretend like grind mentality. I work the hardest in the world, blah, 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 all that. Like, I think I work pretty hard. I think I, 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 I do right by my company. Like that's, that's what I set out to do. And, you know, having passion for this sport, for this job is a big, big part of that. It really is. There is not a single person in this business that has multi-platform volume quite like that. Or maybe if there is, and I just don't know the ins and outs of every single person's specific duties. You can probably count them on one hand and they're at a different place in life than I am at right now with a wife and a young baby that I would prefer to be able to see to grow up. So that's, that's me. That's how I'm looking at, at something like this. And I realize, like, I'm not a college football coach wired mm -hmm. differently, but does that make sense as it relates to this discussion about Duties, demands, quality of life, incentive, and what it takes to be able to do something that we love. Yeah, uh, two things on that. Number one, I think we can just go ahead and remove all of the 
almost uh, like unnecessary part of this of like these are all dream jobs you know i'm talking we're talking about coaches i'm not saying that you said that at all but a great example right like i'm going to this uh leadership summit and i'm sitting there and i'm in the uber and i got a migraine and i'm like oh man i'm nervous like this is my first one of these i gotta make a good impression my head hurts so i might be late and i'm talking to the uber driver he's like you know what i'm saying like he's like i don't have a nine to five i'm like dang like that wakes me up and makes me realize okay what's really important we're all really lucky right so we can remove all the well, yeah, these guys are making not because they're making nine million dollars anywhere, right? This is not do this, which is not you know do something else. Another uh, good example, one to one example, is like Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. Smith busts his butt for ESPN. He's working at dang near every day, especially during the basketball season. Front and center, he's on the radio, he's doing his show. And when he messes up and says, you know, Justin Houston is on the Chiefs a couple of years ago, everyone dumps on him. And it's like, brother, running this guy ragged. But Stephen A. Smith is famously. A little bit of a bachelor. He's a guy who likes to have things his way. He is, his career is, you know, number one, not to say his family is not important, but he's given lots of interviews saying, I'm going to take this to the top. Uh, that's my number one priority. You know, and that would be the version of that, right? Uh, what you know, Skip used to do, or what Stephen A does today. I don't want to put Skip in that category. Stephen A is in a different category than Skip. Different category. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen A works his... No, you're right. That's yeah. almost disrespectful. You're so right about that. There's a guy, but I mean, Herbie is a good example in his industry. We talked sure. about that a little bit. Is that he's working... I mean, the amount of stuff that he does on a weekly basis during football season is crazy, but that's what's important to him. Again, not to say his family is not important, but he has this ability to be at the top, top, top of his game, and that's what he prioritizes. But if he's 60 years old, okay, maybe he wants to have a little bit more of that Dick Vitale role or the, 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 the Corso role where it's like, let me sit back and chill and, and not have to go 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 you know i can promise you right now herbie is not doing it like this until he is deep into his 60s there's no exactly way. <laughs> there's just no way whatsoever he's capitalizing on this window right now he's saying all right i'm at a point in my life where i can do this i'm going to go to a certain level and then eventually who knows maybe he stops doing the nfl stuff with amazon maybe he stops doing you know the the different flight to a college game day site or you know the post college game day flight game with Fowler, like He's going to drop something. There's no way he's mm -hmm. going to continue at that pace, even though he loves it and he has so much passion for it. But it gets to a certain point where you're like, man, this is this is a grind. What do I have to prove? These coaches mm -hmm. right now who are in this world, who are coaching in this world, right? They are wired differently. I fully acknowledge that. But they're in a lose-lose scenario when it comes to this new way of life because – no one in human history really takes pity on those making seven-figure salaries, especially not to coach a sport. If you complain about it, you're not built differently. And if you say nothing about it, then you're going to get burnt out doing this. Everyone wants their coach to be a robot. That is what the job demands. It really is. Alternatively, you can be a human being who has a bad season, gets fired. You can take your eight-figure buyout, which they're almost all getting at this point, and you can live a good life that doesn't demand that you coach football. Good coaches are going to do that instead of trying to work their way back up at a lesser power five or a group of five because they know the grind. And they'll get replaced because they can be replaced. You can just go get a DJ Durkin and do mediocre work for you, and he can get another SEC defensive coordinator job, even though there's a 192-page report outlining the bowling culture that he led at Maryland. By the way, I tweeted that Durkin was the new John, John Chavis because he just goes from SEC defensive coordinator job to the next. John Chavis, the actual John Chavis, replied to that and said, quote, we have nothing in common. 
So that was That's my one Wednesday. of the funniest things you've ever told me. Because like around the SEC, we've all kind of been like, ah, oh, John Chavis. I like how that dude was like, you listen, buddy, I might be John Chavis, but at least I'm not DJ Durkin. Like that yep. killed me. It's like, you you can say what you will about me, but don't ever compare me to that guy. <laughs> I think his wife just followed me after that tweet, which terrified oh me. Yeah. Um, that goes to show what the opinions of DJ are like. There are people that we can make fun of on here. That's a pretty good. No, 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 no. Hold on. Let me put my hand up and say, hold on. <laughs> Yeah, like the entire comparison was not saying that John Chavis had had a scandal, a national scandal like that. It was just that they were both, you know, SEC defense coordinators at four different programs. Clearly, John the Don did not appreciate being associated with TJ Durkin, which, look, I can't say that the three SEC schools that have employed DJ Durkin post-Maryland have felt like that. They have had no problem being associated with with DJ Durkin and they have not cared about the fact that, you know, he loves showing the fellas videos of eyeballs being drilled into them during breakfast. That's just a thing that he likes to be able to do. Um, I could go off about TJ Durkin. I won't, I won't. What was I saying? And I'm not even shaming Auburn, by the way, I'm not shaming a I'm not shaming Ole Miss because like, I think fan bases are going to support who they're going to support and, and you're going to try and justify it in your heads. So, like I, I'm not here to hate on fan bases. That's not my, my intent. It is just wild to me, especially when you look at the track record. And Okay, I'm going off about TJ Durkin. That's not the point of today's discussion. What am I saying? College coaches are in a way like NFL running backs. Not from a pay standpoint, but from a longevity standpoint. If you get five years in the same place, you're lucky. Four is the standard. Three is more normal than you think. Think about this. When I started this job, 2015, we had 65 power five teams. How many of those power five teams have the same coach now that they did back in 2015? How many of those 65, Will? First off, we only have power five. (laughs) We start there. Second. By the way, it is it is officially uh it is officially the core four that I've suggested to Andy Staples. He has signed off on it. Um, for the most part. I think he's emotionally behind Mm -hmm. it. The core four is what we're gonna be going with moving forward. Okay, I like yeah, I like this. Every time I say power five, now it gets that. I like four core core four better than that. Um, of the sixty five, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say about fifty eight of them have changed coaches. Is that way too high? No, that's that's a darn good guess, Will. That is a darn good guess. The amount that have changed coaches of that sixty five, fifty six of them, fifty six. Okay, only nine of the sixty five power five teams have kept the same coach since 2015, only three of which are from the Big Ten and SEC. I actually asked Lauren the other day if she could name those three coaches who they were in the Big Ten and the SEC, and she successfully did, which was super, super impressive. Can you do it? Can I put you on the spot and see if you can come up with that? Stoops. Yep, that's that's the one from the SEC. Ference. Yep. Um, oh, this one's going to be obvious, too. Uh, yep. From 15... Uh, that wouldn't have been day. Um, wow. This is going to be so obvious. You're on the, you're on the uh, right track. Uh, you're on the right track. Will. okay. Um, is it day? It is not day. No, no, no. Okay. Who, who's the third one? James Franklin's the third one. Oh, <laughs> I don't even consider that bad a coach. My bad. I guess he hasn't been there that long. What he's done in that time. I add some stability. I'll get, I'll give James Franklin that. I hate on James Franklin for a lot of things. He he has done things at Penn State to stabilize a program that very much did not have stability in the 
It has been consistent. That is completely accurate. Very consistent. The two big revenue conferences, even if you include Texas, Oklahoma, USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon, if you include those programs that have since joined the two big conferences, that's 34 programs, Will, and only three of them have the same coach from the year 2015. Three. That's it. Mm -hmm. Just named them. Of those 34 programs, how many coach at their current program in the 2010s? Think about that. The, the 2010s, just the decade. So last, we're talking 2019. That's all we're talking about. We're not saying back in 2010. We're just saying 2019. How many of those 34 programs coached at their current program in 2019? Oh, man. So that's going through COVID, though. That's That was like a big watershed, too. So of the 35, 34, 2019, 34, 30, 34 I'm going to say... Round about half, so let's go 15. That one you're off the mark on. That one you're off the mark. Okay. Seven. That's it. Oh, my gosh. Seven of 34 programs. That's it. That's, that's one of, out of every five schools. That, that's, that's what that is. That means in the two premier conferences, we have had new coaches in 27 of the 34 schools since the end of the 2019 season. That is crazy, crazy. And to think about, like, we're just now entering the mid-2020s. We were still in the early 2020s in 2023, mm -hmm. and now we are entering the mid-2020s. I think that's a concern. I do. College coaches are being chewed up and spit out like the NFL because that's a lot of what the NCAA has allowed college football to become, whether the NCAA realizes it or not. You've got a program like Tennessee saying, yeah, we did work out a deal for our star quarterback to get his NIL deal because we were allowed to. And the, the rules were not specific. And no, NCAA, we don't think that you have the structure in place to prevent this. And we are going to call you out. If you are going to say that we are being investigated, well, buddy, you got a lawsuit on your hands because that's going to impact us in a significant way. Tennessee firing back with that lawsuit at the NCAA in Virginia as well, is saying you can't do this with your vague, unenforced guidelines, especially as we're trying to wrap up our signing class and say like, hey, if you're saying that we can't do this, then that is totally strapping our ability to operate as a premier program right now when others are doing the same thing. Coaches from top to bottom have complained about not knowing the rules and wanting guidelines because it'll make their jobs easier. If we had clear guidelines in 2021, then nobody is talking about college football becoming quite what the NFL is. Or at least if there is, then the NCAA is in some sort of acknowledgement of that. But that has not been what's happened. We all talked about how coaches back in the day just wanted to operate with a bag man, break the rules. When in reality, I think coaches want structure. And they mm -hmm. want that instead of operating in this ambiguity world that we live in, because in their mind, they can adapt. And if they know the parameters that are, that are in place, the, the guardrails, so to speak, they can figure it out. What they can't do is this selective enforcement by a toothless organization that didn't set rules when it opened these floodgates back in 2021, and now is pretending like it did all of these things. And so it's creating this headache. If that sounds like a headache, it's because it is. It is a monstrous headache to have to deal with this. And I'm not saying just for Josh Heupel, but for all of these coaches that are trying to figure out what NIL is and how to operate in this world. And while I do believe that college football will eventually break away from the NCAA because 
they can't figure out this employee situation with their one of one business model that really isn't so much a business model. We're still in the midst of this weird time in which selective enforcement is more of a nuisance, uh, is more of a nuisance than a true deterrent, especially when you know that there's no possible way that's that the NCAA is going to get everyone. They're not going to get everyone. They were overwhelmed by the waiver process in the transfer portal. And they're like, oh, crap, we can't do this anymore. They're not about to crack down. If the NCAA had set up true guardrails in 2021 when NIL became a thing and not just adopted, as Danny Cannell reminded us, these interim policies, there aren't cases like Tennessee with chancellors scoffing at the NCAA and basically saying, bring it on. We're going to destroy you and we will make sure that you are not an organization that governs this sport. That is the entire goal and the entire focus. That's still a lot hanging over your head and a lot of uncertainty that coaches don't like. They have enough moving pieces as it, as it currently stands with trying to field a roster that's good enough for them to be able to keep their job or maybe a, a job that's good enough to be able to you know set up their next opportunity, get a buyout, whatever the case may be. If there was a separate agency who actually conducted tampering investigations, maybe these coaches wouldn't feel like they have to constantly recruit their own roster. And maybe they could feel mm -hmm. like they could actually go on vacation in the south of France. And I'm not saying that every coach deserves that. They know what they sign up for. But we wouldn't be talking about Kirby Smart being a travel baseball dad in Mississippi instead of going to Italy. Maybe these things would take care of themselves if we actually had people to enforce it. So all of this mm -hmm. stuff is tied together. And we just kind of look at this and go, well, it's part of the gig. It's part of the gig. And some, some are going to go through all of this feel like they've navigated the NIL, the recruiting, the transfer portal waters. They're, they're going to feel like I, I, I did the best I could. I figured all this stuff out. And then they're still going to look up and realize, crap, I'm at seven wins without any real path to national relevance. And sure, mm -hmm. like the 12-team playoff, it will help with that. But you're still going to need to beat at least three consecutive top 12 teams, maybe four, to be able to get to a national championship. Three of the 133 FBS head coaches are led by guys with a ring. That's it. Three of 133. That number will grow with some more first-time winners. That's going to happen. I do believe that in the 2020s. But it's still an incredibly exclusive club that could feel like it has more and more potholes on that path to get there than it ever did. I worry that we're about to cycle through these coaches more than ever. And instead of some of these coaches feeling like they need to stay in the sport, and that's still their goal is to win a national championship, they're going to realize, hmm, I've made enough money. I can pull an Ed O'Dron and go live on a beach somewhere and just chill on my 18 million bucks and eat some hamburgers and just show up on Instagram every once in a while. Maybe, maybe they're going to realize, Fighting look, a wild bull. <laughs> all of these things looking as golden tan as the day is long. Some will realize that. They will. And they're going to say, hey, why am I going to take a lesser job to go through this? Or, of course, I worry that eventually coaches that should have had another 10 years dominating the sport, or at least being very, very good in the sport, I'm worried that those coaches are going to say enough is enough. That combination can absolutely hurt the sport and take away from the prestige if these guys are aging in dog years and decide, you know what, it's just not and it pains me to say all this because I try not be so doom and gloom. I really try and avoid that because I don't think that's how I feel all the time. I don't think that's ultimately what people want to hear with the sport that they love. Nor do I think that we should overreact to a Boston college coach making a very lateral move. 
but I believe that we're already seeing some cracks in the foundation. And that's why I want to talk about it. And one last question I'll leave you on, and then I'll let you go off here. Do we care? Do we care? That's things don't get done until we care. Things don't get Mm -hmm. fixed until we care. We'll care if it's our team. If Georgia fans watch Kirby smart decide at age, I don't know, 54, 55, you know what, guys? I've had enough. I'm not chasing seven rings. I can't do this until I'm deep into my 60s. This is this is just too much. I I just I I need to do something else. I think my work here is done, buddy. I'll tell you, Georgia fans will care. They're gonna care then. If we see this continue to happen, if we see these issues pop up in this new world that we're living in, that's even different than something like what Washington experienced with Chris Peterson stepping down and him talking about health concerns, all those different things like. That was even before we got to this point of the sport. If we suddenly see that all over the place, yeah, more people are going to care. But I don't know that enough people care about it just yet. I don't know. And there's nobody to make sure that that's going to happen because if we're living in a time in which athletic directors and presidents still aren't willing to give up power and hire a college football commissioner and put in place the right governing body to take over college football – then it's hard to feel like change is on the way. And like there are people that can actually make this happen instead of just talking about it and talking about these problems. So that's kind of where I'm at with all this. It's been a weird week, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a ton. I, uh, I didn't want to sidetrack you because there's so much <laughs> to this, but I mean, Tennessee's complaint to the NCAA was basically just like, look, buddy, we may have hired John Chavis. All right. As long as DJ Durkin's out there, (laughs) as long as DJ Durkin's out there, you're not coming out on us. But listen, we may have trumped up charges against Jeremy Pruitt. So y'all not going to trump up charges against us. We know how to do this. Don't come at us. I love that. Like, this is the best. These are our strongest warriors against the NCAA. (laughs) I'm so so on their side because they're like, if you come at the cake of this, you best not miss because. We'll get angry. We already said Shiano's not coming here. If you think you're going to come accuse us of impropriety, we, we know what real impropriety is, and we know what made up impropriety is, buddy, because <laughs> we've done both. I'll tell you what. Everybody talked about how Tennessee didn't have alignment when that whole you know John Curry thing happened with, with the coup mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. I'd argue since then, the alignment is alive and well in Knoxville, buddy. They, they get their ducks in a row in a hurry and this is not i would argue they had alignment for that just one dude didn't agree but quickly he was overthrown like a dictator and yeah. so point being i those guys they are strongest soldiers it would be nice to tennessee for the rest of this offseason for that reason uh no but all this stuff is so fascinating right and i'm gonna take it even more macro thousand foot view right it's that okay this is the full um effects of capitalism being brought in kind of in sheep clothing and being like, okay, oh, well, these players have always been free agents. Oh, well, you know, I'm all about players' rights. I'm all about NIL. I'm all about the portal. These kids deserve the same abilities that coaches have, all this different stuff, all right? This is all ripple effects of that, okay? Because at the end of the day, these are college kids. These are guys who are, you know what I'm saying, even 17 years, if you're early enrollee, 17 years to – for the tight end for Miami, my age. Um, but that's the oldest you're going to get. Most of these guys are 22. It's the oldest, 23, right? So this league does not need to turn into the NFL. 
you know what I'm saying? When it, when it comes to all the movement, all of the coaching movement as well. And, and, and I think that, you know, college sports has shifted so much from, we talked about a Bobby Bowden, a Les Miles, a Mark Stoops having these down years and several of them in a row and being like, okay, well, we believe in our guy. So we're going to see if he can turn this around. You contrast this now with guys like Jimbo, right? Who you could say oh, he had a couple of years, but again, completely different. That was brought on by the fact that because of these giant salaries, because of these buyouts, um, you can't get rid of some of these guys. And what that turns into, and you alluded to this, was a little bit of quiet quitting. A little bit of guys saying, maybe I'm not going to work 330 days out of the calendar. Maybe what's my incentive once you pay me all this money? So I'm not sitting here saying, oh, like take power away from the players. I'm saying money has not empowered anyone. It's empowered rich people. Big shocker, right? That, okay, we're going to have all this player movement. We're going to have all this, this coach. Okay, but who's that going to benefit? Like Miami, Texas A&M, these guys are going to be fine no matter what because they're always going to have the resources. They're always, if they don't have Ross Bjork, they'll have the next guy. They'll find that guy. You know what I'm saying? So it becomes harder and harder to buy into this culture that made college football unique. Right. And, and I understand there's always been cloak and dagger stuff. There's always been people committing improprieties. There's been scandals that are much worse than what's going on now. I'm not saying that that's, oh, suddenly it's impure. I'm, 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 I get both sides of it. But all I'm saying there is that when you really pull back the curtain and you're, you fully just say, this is a capitalism. And you say, as a coach, your job is to recruit all the time. You're, if a player loses favor, and he starts moping around, boom, tampering happens. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the NCAA almost did like a little bit of the way that Dan Mullen started Anthony Richardson, where it was like, here, damn, this is what you want. It's like, oh, you guys wanted to pay players? You guys wanted this? Oh, we're going to give you no structure. We're just going to get you out there and fail. And here, I told you we were right. Oh, you want to sue us? Okay, then bye. Have fun. And it's like, again, who am I usually disappointed in 90% of the time? Grown-ass men. Because at the end of the day, Y'all have had 20, 30 years for this Ed O'Bannon case who is in well, NCAA 64. <laughs> Y'all saw this stuff coming down the pipe to put all these guardrails in. And so who ends up getting hurt? Kids. Because at the end of the day, their legacy is not made. It doesn't matter if you get 200K in NIL, if that's the end of it. That's not enough money to feed your family off of. Whereas these coaches are getting this money. You know what I'm saying? So that's my only thing is that I'm not, I'm no longer worried and doom and gloom about all this stuff, you know, and, and part of that is because the people that we're talking to here are SEC fans and you're always going to have the coveted job. You know, you're not going to be a uh, UCF or a Washington even, or one of these teams, most of y'all, you know what I'm saying? I mean, again, Mark Stoops has been at Kentucky this long time and plenty of bigger jobs have opened that if he really wanted them, he could have jumped to. In the SEC, you're already at the promised land. So it, it doesn't do a lot to say, okay, boom, boom, boom. But all I'm saying there is that as long as, um, okay, here's a great example. Sean Lewis, the uh, Colorado offensive coordinator that used to be the Kent State head coach, right? He said Kent State is set up to lose because they have to do these buy games. They have to lose. They, ha they could be win a share of their conference. They could win their division and be, you know, six and seven or whatever, seven and six with their conference championship game, you know, because they have to lose all these games against, you know, these big power five teams. And the more of those you schedule, the more of them you lose. And so 
at the end of the day, let's be honest. You know what I'm saying? Because we've taken this focus to everything about college football is about winning a championship. But then that removes the incentive to coach at these smaller places. Like, why would you why would you take the Boston College job if every piece of media, if every rival, if everything is saying playoff, win a championship, win all this? It's not we can compete for our conference. Oh, if we land a Matt Ryan, if we land um like on the guy's name, the the amazing Luke Keekley. If we land a Luke Keekley or a Herzlick, we could compete for our conference. We could have it respectable. We can make a great bowl game. Now it's like, why am I doing any of that? I can't make the playoff. Bowl games don't matter. Nobody plays. My conference championship, my conference is 20 teams, and half of them got three times my budget. So what is my incentive to be at this job right now? And it's a question that the NCAA needs to answer at the end of the day because they're still chasing these dumb little rabbits. They're still here. Let's go get on Iamaliava. Pull back the curtain on Ohio State or Alabama or LSU or one of these big teams that really does something. Because I get exactly where Tennessee is. What's Tennessee doing? Like, what they always find these teams that are just big enough to just say, I don't do that. You know what I'm saying? So that's my thing is it, you guys are doing every – it's like when you when you have a college assignment due and it's due at midnight, and you're like, I'll start at this at 9 p.m. Oh, I'll start at this at 10 p.m. And then you're just like – Type in, type in, type in. You send your professor, oh my gosh, I'm sick. I can't do this. You guys knew this was coming down. You signed up for this world. And I guess, okay, you're right. Quote, unquote, you're right. Now it's Wild West. Now maybe amateurism was better in the way that we had it. Do something. Don't just sit there and say, well, see, you got what you want. No, like you guys are a governing body. And what they're about to do, like you said, it's going to have to be taken out of their hands if they keep just sitting on them and wasting their time chasing down Tennessee. The problem in college football is not Tennessee and Virginia. <laughs> the problem is selective enforcement and mm-hmm. being told you will be at a disadvantage if you follow whatever sort of vague guidelines we have provided. And that's mm-hmm. Tennessee's argument. And it's, and it's a darn yep. good one. It is a darn good one. And it makes it so that these coaches feel like, well, crap, man, I, I better be operating this way. I better get up there after we get our teeth kicked in by 35 against Georgia and talk about how we need more money to be able to pay these guys to get better talent in the doors. If I don't do Mm -hmm. these things, I will die. I will die in this sport and I will not Mm -hmm. be the coach that I was hired to be. Now you could say, well, you know what? There's the, the downside is, is really quite high because you get a buyout and then you can go and live and do whatever you want. But at this point you have to ask for things like that. And you have to operate in that way because if you don't, and if you actually do want to do this, you feel like you can do this for another five, 10 years, you're putting yourself at a blatant disadvantage, right? Because if Tennessee wasn't taking Nico Yamaleava on a private jet from California to Knoxville, mm-hmm. buddy, other teams would have. They probably mm-hmm. did. Okay. And, and that's- look, the portal opens up in Alabama. And where do those players go? Same two schools. Why is that? Everybody uh, well, has equal resource. Everybody can do whatever. You know what I'm saying? That, that's all I'm saying is why are we going after Yamaliava? I'm not saying, again, college football is about, you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Every fan base would tell you that. But we're not going to enforce it against the teams that are the money teams, ever. Exactly what you just said. And that's that's the thing that is going to continue to frustrate everyone until there is mm-hmm. widespread. And maybe maybe that's what we're in the beginning of, and that's why we're seeing these things play out with NIL violations in the state of Florida. We're seeing Florida State, Miami, and Florida get these cases from the NCAA where it's like, hey, this is just the beginning of this of this so-called reckoning, even though 
the NCAA threw its hands up and said, well, we're going to let states decide this. And then you have states acting out of political interest and what's going to benefit them. Well, That's think another- about that, though. This is the opposite of the government, because the government, the thing that can kind of hold us together is the state's rights part of the government is like, at least for all Americans. In this case, it's like, hey, state legislatures, this is now a race to who can get the most completely just transparent NIL laws, because you're not in trouble if you don't break the law. So you can have states just be like, hey, I'm here to help our industries. I'm here to help our businesses. Let's just wide, let's make this wide open. And then states that don't have those laws, what are you going to do? And that's the problem. And that's and that's mm-hmm. the problem. And that's why we've gotten to this point. And there's go- there are going to be other schools that pop up with this. And all of a sudden, the NCAA is going to act like they're really putting their foot down and they're going to be able to govern all of this. And they've got everything totally under control. They don't. They don't have this thing under control by any stretch of the imagination. If they had this thing under control, they would conduct a single tampering investigation, a single one, just, just one. Let's just see what one would look like and see if we can actually go back and look at university issued phones because you've done that before. But with this, you're not mm-hmm. willing to do it because you feel like that's a can of worms that you're just going to open up. And so what they've just done is they have opened up this can of worms with Tennessee and they have said, oh, we, we're, this is this is where we're going to take our shot. And as you mentioned, they went at the program that said, mm, no, that's not going to fly. You're not just going to come in here and tell us that we illegally got this guy and we did this the wrong way based on your interpretation of what those rules are. And so now it creates this precedent moving forward of you can fight the NCAA. Like you can fight the NCAA with these lawsuits. And I guarantee you, Tennessee is Tennessee and Virginia are going to have company. This is going to become a thing right now. And if your athletic department is not looking at this seriously, and if you're not trying to figure out, hey, what's what's the best way to be able to respond to this and show that we, you know, we're not operating under, you know, your guidelines that have changed all these different times, but we were operating based on what our state said and what we were we were mm-hmm. we were led to believe that we could do, then that's what's going to be the defense at all these different places. But it's it's a lot, man. And I realize it's a lot. And, and like it's it's a ton to dig into and dissect as a fan and, and to figure out like, what do I really want? Like if, if you're a fan right now and you're listening to this and you might be asking the question of like, what, what do I want? What would be the ideal outcome for this? Because we watch games and we have an ideal outcome for which side that we want to be able to win, whether we're betting, whether we have our team in the game, whatever. I think you should want the NCAA to be just not a thing in college football anymore. I, I think an ideal, an ideal result would be Tennessee and Virginia winning this. And, and getting to a place where we have a separate governing body over college football because college football has gotten too big. I think it's as simple as that and also as complicated as that. Yes, and, and I'll say this too at the same time, which is that you know for a long time, probably until about the 2010s, as you were talking about, you know, the NFL was just seen job-wise, in my opinion, as just a different tier. You know, I mean, the way that even Harbaugh left is seems a little bit weird now because college football has so much money in it. It's been a little bit more rare for a Nick Saban to win championships at LSU and then go to the Dolphins. We've only seen that a couple of times because of the amount of money, resources, you know, boosters in college football saying, you know, my quality of life is really tied to this team that plays on Saturdays. So I'm going to spend like we're a business like we play on Sundays. And now you're starting to see the backswing of, wait, but you're, like exactly to your point about being, you know, Stephen A or Herbie, it's like, yeah, you're paying me the same money, but for double the hours for overtime for all this different stuff. Cause I got to re-recruit my roster. Um, and, and then exactly not to like beat a dead horse here, but it's the fact of like, 
if you cheat six or seven out of 10, they feel comfortable catching you. But when you start to get to that nine, 10, it's like, yeah, you talked about going through university phones. How many times have we seen that happen, right? Happened LSU, happened Ole Miss, you know what I'm saying? But it's only on stuff that's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to quarantine this to the basketball program or with Ole Miss. It's like, well, guys, guess you're not a blue blood if you do the same stuff. And I understand Ole Miss's point at that point, you know, with, with Hugh Freeze, where it's like, you know, like, okay, let's go look at everybody, you know? But, but, We've seen that this is not unique to college sports either because Astros fans will tell you the same thing about the Red Sox and the Yankees, which is let's go look at their let's go look at what they're doing to steal signs and do all this stuff. And so this is how sports leagues, professional sports leagues operate. And now the NCAA is fully just become one where it's like, yeah, we're just going to take away this illusion of like actually doing the right thing. It's all going to be about perception. It's going to be about trying to warn teams away from doing stuff versus actually enforcing the punishment when the rules are broken. Because anyway, so you you get it, yeah. I think it's it's super duper interesting because at the end of the day, it's like if you can say I'm about coaching football, so I want to leave college, then we start talking about work life balance. We're talking about you're getting consumed by football, your daily life, your health, your mental health, your physical health, your diet, all that stuff is not lining up with someone who is fit to coach young men and lead that type of example that you expect and and deserve from a college coach if you're a d1 athlete to give you the guidance to say let me objectively give you this advice you know like a great example is jalen hurts like that guy i think was career was managed pretty well honestly i i think that it was like hey man you don't really have a shot here do a year to figure it out go to oklahoma figure it out i think that was pretty good roster management i do i i think he everybody kind of won there right um where it's like hey like you know we're gonna bench you here but we don't want you to just act you know put out a press release saying you're transferring. Let's focus on right now and let's go from there. Like, but there's not that trust because it's not been earned. It's been eroded between player and coach or coach and player and b- both sides of that relationship where it's like, we're not looking out for number one, the best interest of the player, you know, we're really ultimately looking out for the best interest of the coach. And we were getting more and more of these moves that are like, I told you so moves like the Dan Mullen thing. I was just joking about where it's like, well, maybe this isn't even what's best for the team. But I'm going to go out there to send a message to boosters or I'm going to be Mark Stoops and I'm going to say this to make sure that, you know, that these people hear me. And it's like, what is this really about? You know, like, like we're saying, it, it's all going the same way, which is it's not about developing kids. It's not about academics. It's it's starting to not be about winning football games as that becomes more and more nebulous. It's about money. And that's not good when you're talking about kids. When you're talking about people. And, and one thing that we said off air that I do want to say is that, like, moving, we've talked about it's one of the worst things you can do. You know, in our mind, oh, this is a free agent. This guy's going to hit the transfer portal. Bro, moving at 18 years old where your money is coming from these weird nebulous sources and your friends are saying one thing and your coach is saying something, your high school coach is saying something else, that sounds like a mental health nightmare for me as someone who, you know, and then you become cold is what you do. You become a business. You become an LLC. You become a professional before you are barely old enough to vote. You know, you get guys committing to Arizona, having their coach leave and going, well, I fell in love with Tucson. I fell in love with all this stuff, but now what do I do? And it's like the smart decisions get up out of there and start over. And it sucks that we're treating these kids like free agents because they shouldn't be. It should be up to educators. It should be up to a governing body. It should be up to coaches to have their best interest at heart, but less and less that's true. It's a difficult thing to navigate for all mm-hmm. parties. And that's, that's, I think, the takeaway from seeing from seeing this week. And I realize, again, not everybody's just going to sit here and sympathize with coaches because they are paid to do this job and they are paid a significant mm-hmm. amount of money. But the, the question that I will continue to ask is at what point does it just not become worth it? And as much as we would love to say, these coaches don't do it for the money. They don't do it for this. 
They also would like to prioritize quality of life. They would like to be able to say, all right, at what point can I just look up and say, I'm good. And I don't need to deal with this anymore. I don't want to deal with these moving pieces. And I'm just going to go live my life. I think that, mm -hmm. I think that covers it. I think we hit on a lot of different stuff today. A lot of different. Things. I think they should all strive to be Lane Kiffin. I think he's got it. <laughs> I don't think that dude stayed up late at night, but he's having fun. You know, seems like he's the only one having fun. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the answer to to fixing the life for college football coaches? It's it's just embodying Lane Kiffin. Get a TikTok. Just get a TikTok. Get you some custom swag, some hoodies, some Jordans. Have a good time. Yeah, you're good. Just don't take yourself too seriously. All right, mm -hmm. let's kick it to Lane Kiffin's biggest fan, Billy Lucci. Uh, very much say that tongue in cheek. Uh, great perspective though from Billy on how all this played out with Jimbo. Some stuff about the, the hurdles that that Elko is going to be working through early on. Uh, really interesting perspective on Connor Wigman too, and even a little bit of Dan Campbell because people forget former Aggie as well. Uh, so here's Billy. I'm not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Mr. Tex Ags, Billy Lucci. Uh, Billy, everyone is kind of dogging Dan Campbell right now. And, you know, I get it. It's revisionist history. It's the fourth down calls, all that. But I think I'm greater than 0% responsible for the Lions losing that game and blowing a 24 to 7 lead because I sent you a message when the Lions were up by 17, yeah. like saying like, hey, you know, we'd love to have you on this week. We'll talk Dan Campbell, you know, Aggie. your favorite former Aggie. I, how fair is that? Am I responsible for that? I would say yes, but there are two other people I, I tend to blame. One, there, there's a guy, I call him Wildfire Bill. He is the, you know, runs the country club up here, Traditions, and we invited him to watch it with us. And I've got a rule for him with Aggie basketball. He's derailed a few games, and he, he's got to be on time. And if he's going to come late, it's got to be when things are going bad for our team. He, so because he's got a pattern of coming in with a big lead and then it falling apart. He comes in smiling like it's no big deal. Well, you walk in, it's 24 to 7, and from the moment you get there, they're outscored 27 to 7. I put a lot on him. I'm also going to put a lot on myself because for two reasons. Number one, I went to the first playoff game. I went to the second playoff game. So in their history, I guess Detroit is what they're like, almost undefeated when I go to their playoff games, me and Eminem. Well, not Eminem because he went this week and they lost. I needed to go to San Francisco. I was sick all last week. I wimped out. I didn't do it. I needed to go. Uh, so from that standpoint, I, I'll take a high degree of responsibility, and I may or may not have booked a hotel room in-game. That's tough. Okay, that, that makes it way worse. But I've told myself, as soon as the Chiefs won, I was going anyway. That's my workaround. But, yeah, you know, the whole thing with uh, Dan and the, uh, the fourth downs and things like that, like, the more I dig into that, the less I think that's I, – I think I know why people talk about it, and I know because it's so unconventional, and I know, like, 45, 46-yard field goals. But the more I dig into that kicker – their percentages on fourth and two or three, the fact that one should have absolutely, you know, been converted. And just going for the kill and going to go to the Super Bowl right there, like so much is made of all that. And I do think with a third-year NFL head coach, third-year head coach, period, right, 
you're you're learning and evolving as you go. I disagreed the week before when I'm sitting up there in, in his suite, like going, man, are they really going to run it on second and third or throw it on second and third and goal from the one against the Bucks up seven where 10 puts them in a really t- – and then they go for it on fourth down and one, and it, which you knew they would. It was one yard, and they pop it for an easy touchdown. And so it's the way they coach there. It's not just Dan. It's the, it's the organizational – philosophy and I think a lot of that has to do with a Dan B the the organization and the city and the history that they've just kind of gone all in on this we're going for it like we're not it is what it is I I don't think you can kind of turn it on and off I think I do think if he had this is my opinion I think if he had a, a you know top five top 10 kicker in the league these conversations become a little different I wonder if he'd been five yards closer does he just no-brainer kick it I don't know um but I do know this I think that the reality that not enough people talk about in that football game was the real turning point the real thing is you had a a interception bounce off a guy's helmet into the Niners receiver's hands which was essentially for a touchdown they were down at the one and then two plays later you fumble a handoff and that, that's 14 points that maybe never would have. But that's the ball game right there. That's where it – I know there are a million different chances and a million decisions to go through. But to me, that was the ball game. I think they'll be back. I think it was massive yesterday, Connor, uh, that they were able to keep their offensive coordinator. And I hope another Aggie, Aaron Glenn, gets a head coaching job this year. If not, he'll get it next year. And if, if it's not this year, you bring back those two coordinators and the nucleus of that team, I, I mean – I think they're a top three pick in the NFC going into next season. Timing in life is everything. If you hadn't been sick, if Dan Campbell had been able to stare into your eyes on those fourth down plays and just say, Billy, just, just guide me, you know, be, be my kind sensei. Like a, yeah. like uh, something uh, like that. I, I think that's, that's perfectly fair. Um, yeah. I, I think he would have, you know, been able to, to kind of, see right through it and his heart would have told him to go in the right place. Um, Timing in life also probably played a part in this very brief time in which we're like, could Dan Campbell return to A&M and be the Aggies next head coach? Was it a greater than 0% chance or was it truly zero with the run that the Lions were about to embark on? It was zero. And, and, and people don't understand. This is a hard one for most Aggies get it. This is not a, I feel like it was more like the the Longhorn fans and and the Twitter trolls that I just enjoy battling with and and I like most of them most of them I like but it was just a chance for them to kind of go oh it turned down ain't it There's no one that loves this place it, Dan Campbell is it, whatever the most you can you know love and root for and and hope for success for A&M he's on that level but that's equally so with Detroit, the Lions, the city. A lot of people don't understand him. When they think, I read about it, and like, oh, it's ego, or, you know, it used to be being an alpha. Now on, on Twitter or X, they call it, you know, toxic masculinity because the guy likes to go for it on for He believes in his players. He believes in his quarterback. He believes in his own line. That's what he wanted as a player. That's what he, that's how he coaches. That's what he believes. It's not about ego. He believes they can do it. And that's the most loyal 
person I've met in my life, anytime, any era, anything, it's Dan Campbell. So when the line, when you get turned down, you interview for five, six, seven NFL jobs and you don't get them. And because of the background, because he wasn't a, a, a coordinator, he had never called plays, it's not, and they turn you down and then the Detroit Lions and that family, the owners give you a shot and you think you fit there culturally, you fit there as a personality, and you go there and, and to do what they've done and they've been building it now, you know, it's closing in on what, four, I guess three seasons, almost four years. There was no way he, he was walking away from that. And, and people also have to understand, Connor, you cover it more than anyone. You know what the state of college football right now. Alma mater or not, you're going to leave an NFL head coaching job three years in when you're on the brink of doing something potentially, you know, it's like a Disney movie if the Detroit Lions win a Super Bowl. You're going to leave that to, to go to the, the mess that is college football right now, having never coached on that level in any capacity? Hell no. So I knew there was no chance, and I also know that Dan would have, if they would have wanted to, spent hours and hours on the phone with them uh, talking about what direction they need to go. He was, he was, he's been really fired up with the, with the Mike Elko hire and what he's seen from that so far. I can say that. Well, I do want to talk Elko with you, but now that we've had a couple of months to kind of digest the fallout of that, that Stoops thing that, that happened and then it didn't, what, what can you set the record on of like what went down that night? Because you, you, you said at the time, like, this is like the craziest night of covering this team and being around, you know, all things A&M that I've experienced. Like what was maybe misinterpreted then? And what do we maybe have more clarity on now? Oh, I, I don't think there was much on, on my end misinterpreted. I was watching nationally and, and I was watching the spin from Lexington. I, I don't know if Ross Bjork was able to really there was no spin really to be had uh, on the A&M side. I mean, it was what it was. I put that name out. I knew about it for a few days. I put it out on a Friday with several other names. But I said, you know, Whittingham from Utah was, was starting to move into the you know, discussion pretty significantly. But I said, Mark Stoops, this one has a lot of momentum right now. And I don't remember if I said if I had to pick, but we, it had a lot of momentum. That's I know I said that, and that set Aggies off. They didn't like it. I I think it was a little much, considering what Stoops. I think people are not are kind of forget. We talk about Dan at Detroit, but what Stoops has done at Kentucky. I do think there were a lot of similarities though on the on the Jimbo, like how much was going to be left in the tank to come here and start it over. And and I get all that. The reaction, though, was so visceral. It was so over the top that I thought that had to be a real red flag for Ross. And then they start talking about it on game day at SEC Nation the next morning, and people started getting more and more worked up. And what I said that day to anyone that asked is, guys, the decision makers, the ultimate decision makers, the board the, that have – they empowered the athletic director – to go out and with, with the help of one or two other people and find, and find a head coach. And they gave him a pretty, not I wouldn't say strict set of parameters, but you kind of knew what the contract was going to look like. You kind of knew. And unless it was going to be a Ryan Day, a Kalen DeBoer, a Dan Lanning, 
then you go back and adjust, and I think they would have gone up and, and paid a ton. But the reality was it was going to be here. It's kind of what we're what we'd like to do here. A lot of incentive based stuff. A lot of you know. And they went and kind of got to the finish line with Mark Stoops. And no matter what anybody says, I'm one. I'm let's call it ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure that Mark Stoops accepted the job. He was coming to Texas A and M Saturday night after I made the post that it, that was likely looking like that was going to be the deal. A scheduled meeting with the regents, uh, whether I think that was, I believe it was over the phone. That did not go well. And my point starting Friday was the regents are some of the biggest donors, some of the most influential donors, but they're also, they're Aggies, most, almost all of them. They're Aggies. They went, when you watch the reaction of Aggies, don't forget they're Aggies. You know, and I think that affected everything. I think the biggest thing, though, was that Mark Stoops, for his, I think the pushback was his resume and the pop of that hire versus what you're going to be paying to get him. It, it, it didn't, the, the two didn't jibe with, with the ultimate decision makers. So they kind of empowered Ross to go make the decision, but we get final say, and the final say was not happening. And, you know, I think Mike Elko, I don't, I think he woke up the next day and went to bed thinking it was over with and woke up going, wait a second, I've got the offer to, um, they offered me the job. You know, I think that's exactly how it happened. So Billy, correct me if I'm wrong here. If the, and maybe I shouldn't even put a number on it, but if the consensus is from Aggie faithful, and I'll include the Board of Regents in that because you mentioned that's that's part of this, right? Like, yes, they are the big decision makers, but if they are approaching this from an emotional standpoint as well, they are a part of this. If this consensus feeling when this first starts to surface that Mark Stoops could be the next head coach at Texas A&M, if, if it's a, a positive reaction overall, 75%, let's throw that number out there. Is Mark Stoops the, the coach at A&M right now? I, I think so, but what, what I will tell you is uh, it's it's that to say that would be downplaying. There was a, I think there was a real issue with the amount. I, I think they probably behind the scenes started at X and Stoops and Jimmy Sexton and X turned into this, and here was the threshold for a coach with his body of work, and somewhere along the way I think they passed that. Had it been this wildly popular thing, I mean, let's let's just be realistic and say, yeah, I, I do think it had been wildly popular. They probably said, okay, I mean, a little more than what we were comfortable with, but seems like this is a home run or or whatever. And and obviously, it that was not the feeling. So you combine those two. I think it had to be probably the combination of both. Public perception impacts these things. It does. And we've seen multiple cases where it impacts a hiring and it impacts obviously a firing because optics are huge in this business. And if you have a stadium that's half empty, and I always bring up the example of people were like caught off guard that Paul Chris was fired at Wisconsin. I'm like, did you see the half empty stadium that they had on Saturday for a team that was yeah. going nowhere? Because that's what leads to a midseason firing like that. I've heard stories about the the fundraising that it takes to pay a buyout, but that's for buyouts that are the fraction, the size of what Jimbo's was. How do those conversations work when it's a number that's so unprecedented 
that is, it's almost hard to fathom. And you can talk about having unlimited pockets, this and that, but how does that even that that ball even get rolling on the back end? I I think first of all that tells you how kind of over it everybody at the at the decision making level was with with Jimbo with the result again I, we talked about stoops and, and where that matrix meets so the results versus uh the you know the results versus the, the what you're paying him and then the, and at some point I think the discussion you know and it was during the season it was I think where it really started to go was was and there are a lot of people that left South Beach and Miami really pissed off with the way A&M kind of imploded in the second half of that football game because most people weren't truly believing that Miami was that good. Um, and it was a lot of the same stuff. It was special teams. It was offensive line. But they still that wasn't going to get him fired. That was not like Kevin Sumlin versus UCLA in 2017. The Bama loss – Losing a close game late, that wasn't going to get him fired. That was frustrating. That Tennessee game, I started to notice a notice. And here's why, Connor. You watch that game. Tennessee stunk that day. That was not a good football team. And Missouri proved that a couple weeks later. They weren't terrible. But they even on that day, Tennessee played bad football. Joe Milton, that offense, the A&M played worse football. And so everyone that traveled out there and everyone that watched that game, everyone that mattered knew that all A&M had to do in year six under Jimbo with a lot of talent on the team was just play a decent football game and you beat a ranked team on the road. In front of 100,000, the whole season looks different. So that was a bad one. And that's when I think really I started to hear people say that that mattered, that I trusted, like, it – it ain't a sure thing he's going to be back the next season. That was the very first time I started hearing that from people that I would go, like my antenna went up. The Ole Miss game was was the and, – and, and I hate to even say that because Lane Kiffin would love hearing that, but the Ole Miss game was a dagger, like, to me. And it was because it was the last game that they'd lost before he was, before he was let go. But for all the stuff Kiffin talks – all the crap he talks, and and there's part of me that appreciates it. There's part of me that's like, this guy is just too much. But all that going on, and you go up there, and, and he's put a target on you, your program. Uh, if we're being real honest, made up. It's made up a lot in terms of you know A and M's process to building that roster. But you go up there, and and lose that game to them at the end, like you did. Uh, I think that was. That was the last straw for a lot of people. And it, it really was because it was within the next, what, week and a half, week or so, they, they, you know, you knew it was coming up in that Regents meeting. So to get there on the buyout, that's what I think there was, there were some real behind the scenes discussions of how does this work? Because they're not going out and saying, hey, Connor, hey, Luch, can we get a little more money from you to pay Jimbo's contract? No, they're, they're going to do that and say it's going to be in a different way. Like, A, the collective needs more, you know, and, and it was already facilities, so they don't have to ask that anymore. Now it might be a baseball stadium or whatever. There's other ways they're going to, you know, but they're not going to go to those donors, those specific people, and say, hey, we need money to buy out Jimbo. 
So it was more of, do we have the money to buy out this contract and, and to buy out the initial chunk, right, that they were going to have to? Do we have that? And then what does, what does it look like over the next few years in terms of our athletic department budget to continue to pay him off? And does that work? And if so, how? So those were not easy or quick discussions. So that was, that was happening over the course of probably, I think, I would say almost back to Tennessee, but several weeks before uh, he was fired after the Mississippi State game. I think the assumption is that Jimbo will just sit on that buyout money and live on his ranches and do just fine for however long he wants to. Like, I think if, where, where do you think that next step is? For for Jimbo? I, I think he wants to coach, and I'm not speaking for him. Um, but I know enough people close to him that I, I think he wants to coach and, and I think he wants to coach badly. I think he's fine sitting out this year. I think he is in, enjoying just catching a breath, regrouping. Um, but I, yeah, I do think there's a strong desire there for him to get back into it and coach. I don't know where, like, I, I have heard from people close to him. He wants it to be in the SEC. Um, which would be interesting, you know, like I, I don't, you know, we got to look ahead next year, the year after, see what's what's going on, who would be interested. But I think that would be his desire. I'm not saying that's going to happen. A lot of people think he may end up back at West Virginia when all is said and done. But I don't know the where. I do know that he he does want to coach college football again. Let's talk Elko. Um, you know, I've been a big Elko guy for for a while since he was there, since he was there early on as a coordinator. And it's something I've, I've talked about for a bit. It's not the Dion approach in the portal that he's taking. It's more of like the, the year one Hugh Freeze approach where it's I think it's up to 23 transfers that he has. I think it's 13 from the power five level. How necessary was this this change in philosophy to get this roster kind of in a, in a place where it can be respectable uh, in his first year? I'll say this. My two guys I wanted, my, my, my top two when this whole process started, uh, because Dan Lanning, what people didn't realize and I, I knew from the get-go was that 40 – plus million dollar buyout is what it really was. Not to 25. People thought it was for 25. It wasn't. Yeah. So it's funny to me that, you know, so many people thought like Bama was going to possibly get him and that there was going to, that there was, a, that he turned down. Yeah. He's going to turn down everyone because he agreed to a deal that does not let him leave. And he's very happy there. I, I don't mean that. I, mean, I think that, I think he is truly happy in that situation, but he, honestly almost couldn't leave if he tried because of that buyout. So my top guys from the jump were Kalen DeBoer and Mike Elko. And DeBoer's thing was going to drag out and AM wasn't going to wait. And I'm going, they would hit a home run with Mike Elko. And, and I don't think a lot of people would realize it. There was very little to no pushback on Elko and, you know, from the fan base. I mean, I think it was a, most people went, okay, yeah. And then some people were pretty fired up. But it was not negatively received at all. And, and maybe the Stoops thing even helped that even further. He was probably going, man, if they're going to react like that to Stoops, what are they going to do to me? But really, it probably helped it even more so. But people were excited about Elko. Um, since he's gotten here, though, that excitement level has risen exponentially because of the aforementioned portal and the way they attacked it. 
because of how contrary to contrary to what you see all over you know social media, he did a tremendous job of re-recruiting this roster and keeping it together. And I know, like you know, Walter Nolan uh, was you know. Uh, Evan Stewart, those guys get all the attention. But if you really look at the percentage of guys that came back, it, it's it's very impressive, not the least of which is Shamar Turner, the senior defensive lineman who returned for another year. But he did a great job with that. He did a great job in the portal. And I think as this staff got to be assembled, people started to get more and more excited as they hear him interviewed. Connor, you've been a big fan. I have too. I've followed him since the day he got here. I've always liked him personally. I've loved him as a DC. Talking to him since he's gotten this job, I think people have seen little pieces of it. And someone like you that can watch all of college football, and particularly this part of the country, you're watching what's going on at Duke. You realize the difference that's coming in here in terms of this guy has a plan today a month from now, spring football, next fall, five years from now. There's a very specific plan in how he wants to attack the portal versus high school recruiting versus, you know, day-to-day roster management and player personnel. He's got team. It looks so much different than anything I've seen here. And I mean that, like, I got here at the – well, I, I was in school with R.C. Slocum. By the way, interim AD, shout-out R.C. Also – clean bill of health in his fight with cancer as of a couple days ago. So that's probably the best news I, you know, I've heard this week. But R.C. was the head coach when I started this. So I've seen the entire, you know, the end of the R.C. era, the entire Fran era, um, the entire R.C., Fran, Sherman, Sumlin, Jimbo, all those. This looks so much different than anything I've seen in terms of – I get the feeling that Mike Elko has just been waiting on this chance his whole coaching life. Not specifically A&M, but, like, he's, I think he's just been paying attention and thinking and learning and how this is how I would do it. And then he got to Duke and he did it that way. And in the back of his mind, he's like, if I ever get back to A&M or get a job like A&M with those resources, this is how I'd do it. And I think he's been able to even take it to another level here. So I'm fired up. And and what he did in the portal, Connor, was very necessary because I think you needed to bring that mix of group of five standouts, guys that have played a ton of football, put a lot on tape, um, captains of teams, defensive MVPs of teams, leaders, veterans, but then also mix that with – with some of this young talent they got out of the portal that, you know, like say you, you the, the extremes would be Des Ricks in the secondary, who's a five-star that was at Alabama and, and was playing behind some great players this year and just b- barely got his feet wet. And then you go get a, a, a guy, uh, you take a safety out of Central Michigan and Trey Jones, who you watch him on tape and he looks like a, a grown man out there playing. He's played a ton of football. And he's coming in as like you know team captain type material and turning all kinds of heads right away. So they kind of hit that, ran that whole gamut, and uh, I love it. You know, you go take a group of five defensive linemen, and then you also go take uh, the Big Ten sack leader and Nick Scorton, who's coming back home to Brian, 
College Station, like with a chip on his shoulder and something to prove. So I, I love what he did in the portal. Everything he's done so far has got the fan base, I think, a lot more fired up than they thought they would be at this point. I think a lot of people are wondering, are they going to go into the portal and get a quarterback? Because right after the Colin Klein move happens, which was something that I was like, whoa, that's that's a big-time assistant hire. So much of this, whether or not you can have success in these jobs, isn't so much based on your resume. It's based on the decisions that you make after you get the job, which you get right. because of your resume. And the Klein hire, that happens. And I remember a few people asking, like, do you think that means that we're going to see Will Howard come on board and that he's going to follow him from Kansas State? And I was like, nah, I think they they like Wigman. They like Wigman. Why wouldn't you? And I, I was of the belief that if he had gotten a full season, he would have taken that next step year two, and we would have seen a guy kind of blossom into one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC. What's your take on that marriage so far between Colin Klein and Connor Wigman? I think it's been – Tremendous. Just talking to Connor, I get the feel. Like I, I see a difference. You know, there's been a couple times he's gonna come in here to do interviews and he's texting me like, Hey, I'm I've been sitting here watching film with you know, like he's he's in it. He's into the offense. He's really excited about it. And I think Colin Klein's beyond excited for a guy like him. People forget, like I, I always tell people, you know, SEC Nation came here for that Auburn game. And so, you know, we're hanging out that you know the day before the night before talking about Aggie football and the SEC and you know the the thought at that time was like who who's the who are the best quarterbacks <clears throat> in the SEC right now and it was like Jaden Daniels was already starting to okay it's probably Jaden this was you know this is like fourth game so it wasn't like you know Obviously, looking back, he's the Heisman. But at that time, probably Jaden. And then it's like, Jackson Dart. And then it might be Wigman. You know, and some people say, is it Dart or Wigman? You think about the rest of the league at that time, as we're closing in on the end of September. You know, that was before Milrose emergence. It was right, it was a week after he got benched. But had Connor, and then, you know, in the first half of that game, he gets hurt. And that's it for the year. I agree with you. Without getting too carried away, had he played all of last season, I mean, A, Jimbo Fisher might still be here. You look at some of those close games. You look at Ole Miss. You look at Bama, Tennessee. But B, I do think there would have still been growing pains, experience-wise, bad offensive line. But I think with what you said is right. I think he would have been the kind of in that upper tier of SEC quarterbacks at the end of his sophomore season. And then when you talk about returnees, I think Connor Wigman would be way up on that list right now as we're talking. So I'm fine with him being kind of down on the list and stuff because the reality is he started eight games. And But I think what he was starting to look like, and I'm talking about people that watch the quarterback position and really watch him getting rid of the football and the ball placement and the accuracy and that kind of feel for the rush and the pressure. And, and those are the people whose opinions matter the most to me when I talk to them. And what they were seeing from him was they're going, that's uncoachable stuff. Like that's, that's winning stuff right there. That's elite that you can't coach. And, and I think he's got a lot of that. And I think you combine that, like you said, with a great hire like Colin Klein, it'll be interesting. And then Wiggins – I think Wiggins, you know, bringing him over from Alabama, a lot of people are thinking that's uh, – a lot of people are thinking that's, you know, to coach and recruit 
elite wide receivers, but I think the early returns and a big part of why Elko hired him is he's so impressive in terms of a of a football mind as well. So I think they've added a lot in terms of those two guys and what they'll be able to bring in terms of the AM offensive scheme. I think Wiggins will play a big role in that as well. When people tell me that I'm too high on Wigman, like you, you realize that as a starter, he's got a 16-2 to two TD to INT ratio, and the two picks happen in Miami on an Anaya Smith drop and a play on fourth down where they're down late. He's just trying to make something happen, and he's like scrambling for – for his life on a play where it's like in the normal course of a game, that's not a typical pick, like some backbreaking play. And so I feel like those who have watched have seen a guy that has the ability to be special, but obviously so many other things can contribute to that. And it'll be interesting to kind of see his development. Hopefully he's able to stay healthy for, for a full year. What's, what's the realistic expectation for, for all those, all those pieces that are, that are, that we feel like are, okay, you've done this, this, and this to get to this point. We know the schedule is what it is in this expanded SEC. We know what, what last year was and what it felt like it could be at different points, but ultimately what it became, is it seven wins? Is it, is it eight wins? What what do you feel like is the, is the bar that we should set for A&M in 2024? I think what's fair for, you know, these programs in transition, you know, A&M wasn't at rock bottom. Um, it's not like, you know, they, they were, what were they last year? Seven and seven and five, five and seven the year before I would say, I would call that kind of rock bottom. Um, but they're coming off seven and five with a lot of close losses. Now, obviously I think Elko is going to have to break a lot of that down and rebuild it. But I think a lot of that has happened via the portal and in the offseason, albeit by, through coaching staffs, coaching hires, Tommy Moffitt coming in, I, I think after sitting out, you know, since Brian Kelly's arrival in Baton Rouge, probably hungrier than ever. We had him on today. It was really interesting to hear him on Tex-Ags radio. But I think a lot of that tear it down, rebuild it stuff's going to happen between now and when they take on Notre Dame to start next season. I think eight is fair. I, I think eight is a, uh, I think that's a good kind of measuring stick. And, and, and I don't know, maybe that's unfair to put on a first year coach, but I, I actually think, again, I don't think it was rock bottom in terms of the talent. I think there were some positions where they really needed to upgrade and to Elko and this staff's credit. They have cornerback uh, being one that really stood out. I still think they might need to tinker with adding another receiver or another linebacker, but corner and linebacker were really, I think, poor in terms of what was on campus. And they've, they've gone a long way towards addressing that, especially corner. I, I don't think there are many like glaring holes. So now it's a matter of Elko making this all fit and work. And I like the team that he's going to put on the field. I like the players he's going to be putting on the field this year. And I also like, uh, if you really start digging into that roster and putting together a two deep, you can look at it and go, for year one, that's a lot to work with, you know, and he's obviously going to have more as he goes on. But for year one coach in the SEC, I think a lot of year one coaches, and a lot of that had to do with what he and the staff did in the portal, 2023 additions, including some all-conference guys, some guys that were once five stars, there's a lot to work with year one. And I think culturally he's going to turn this thing on its head overnight. I think it's already happening. So I think, I think they'll be, 
have a surprising year one under Elko. I really do. I think they're, I think the, the staff, the talent and the way the schedule lays out, look, it's not easy. We're sitting here going, you got it. Auburn shouldn't be that good. Florida shouldn't be that good. They might be, you got to go to Auburn. You got to go to Florida, but the reality is A&M doesn't play Bama. They don't play Georgia. They don't play Ole Miss next year. They do have a tough draw in Missouri, which should be their best team since their, you know, East championship teams at the very beginning. They do play Missouri. They get Notre Dame. They have to play Texas, and they have to play LSU. But guess what? All four of those games are right here at Kyle Field. Any team ever in the SEC, if I could tell you your four toughest games of the year at Kyle, your four toughest games of the year at home, they'd take that. And any team that doesn't have to play Bama or Georgia – they take that. So I think eight is is reasonable and, and uh, not unrealistic at all. Really great stuff. We'll do this again soon sometime. All right, Connor, anytime, brother. Jersey contest. If you've been listening to this podcast for a few years, I think you know the story of this jersey, but maybe not. I am currently wrapping a white 90s Giants Saquon Barkley jersey. Mm-hmm. You can see the back as well. Mm-hmm. This was, if you can believe it, a garage sale find. Garage sale. Mm. Yeah. So Laura and I going for, you know, Saturday morning, leisurely walk, run, whatever we used to do before Claire was born. Um, and uh, there's this one house in, in our neighborhood that, has a garage sale like every other week, which not legal, but they, they do it anyways. <laughs> you know that LLC. Yeah, very much so, so. That garage is hitting the transfer portal. <laughs> Let's see the NCAA enforce garage sale rules on them. Yeah, I think they could. Um, but this house, uh, I always, you know, you just peek out of the corner of your eye, see like, oh, is there anything that catches my eye? And on this walk that we were on, um, this was like, pro- this was like early 2021, I think this was. Yeah. And um, I see a rack of, of jerseys, of football jerseys. All right, Lauren, we go check this out for a couple minutes. Okay, let's go. Um, and find the Saquon jersey. The guy who is selling at the garage sale, he tries to, like, he, like, explains, like, oh, yeah, like, this is this guy and this is this guy. There was, like, a Mitch Trubisky jersey up there. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm a Bears fan. Wasn't getting a Mitch Trubisky jersey at that time. And then he's like telling me about like the guys on like each team and stuff like that. And I say to him one time, I'm like, oh yeah, like I actually write and talk about college football for a living. So like I know, I know football and stuff. He just bypassed that, totally bypassed that. And like I was, uh, I was looking at the Saquon, this Saquon jersey, and um, and he's like, oh yeah, like he's you know he's with the Giants, like he's you know I think he's still got a few years left on his contract, blah blah. blah. I'm like, yeah, like he's he's one of like my favorite players ever, like you know. I, I've covered him. I've like, I know the deal. I get it. And I think a to third me, this time, is a Joe Moorhead Jersey. Actually, this is just says Joe Moorhead on it. This is just a Joe Moorhead respecter Jersey. Uh, that, that's mm-hmm. pretty much what this is. And so I think a third time he tries to explain to me. And I almost thought at that moment, like just walk away. This guy has botched the sale by not listening to a word that's come out of my mouth of like, buddy, it says football on my taxes. I know what I'm doing here. Okay. 
Um, it's I've only football of my taxes. It's such a bar. <laughs> I've, I've only used that line to a few people. <laughs> a guy, a guy that offered me a trade in our fantasy football league. That look, I thought about just texting him back, and I said instead I used that to talk crap about him behind his back. I'm not proud of that, but I did. Um, and so, so uh, like I asked, you know, I asked the price for the jersey. Jersey's only twenty bucks. So I'm like, okay. It's an XL size jersey. That's the only problem. Your boy mm. at five eight is not an XL. I'm not, I'm not fitting into an XL. This is a big XL. Okay, so it's not even something that I can talk myself into, eat my way into, as some would say. Um, that, that's not happening with this jersey. Not so, with that attitude, <laughs> right? Uh, no, there's, there's just only so much I can balloon up to that would make that jersey make sense. Even if I got myself a belly, it's still draping over it. I'm not growing anytime soon. If anything, I'm going in the opposite direction. So Lauren says, all right, here's what we'll do. She's like, your birthday's coming up in a little bit. I'll, I will get this jersey fitted for you. Like, I'll, I'll get it fitted to whatever dimensions you want. Like, I don't know. I'm sure people listening to this have had, like, you know, various clothing items, maybe a jersey fitted to their liking before. But I was just thinking like, okay, so yeah, if this costs 20 bucks at the garage store, it costs maybe 60, 70 bucks to get it fitted. That's still a really nice, you know, like this is like the legit Saquon jersey. I talked about how the Charles Woodson jersey was more of like the, the printed on numbers that uh, no, like this is this is a real deal. Um, and like I could be all in for 80 bucks. Sure, let's do it. So mm -hmm. go through that whole process, get stitched, like, you know, do all that. It's, it fits me really, really well. I absolutely love this jersey, um, even though as I wait, you know, on Saquon to definitely leave the Giants probably. Um, well, I think I've worn it three times. I think mm -hmm. I've worn it three times in the last two years, one of which I didn't leave my house for, and it was like the Giants-Vikings playoff game. And I wore You know what? Actually, I think I wore it to the grocery store that day, and that was about mm -hmm. it. Um and like one or two other random instances here and there. And it was kind of a test for me. We've talked about this uh, a couple of years ago on the show was how this was kind of like my last test for buying a jersey at this stage of my life of mm -hmm. how often would I wear it. Maybe it's different because it's not my team. And I don't really feel obligated on a given Sunday to be like, I'm going to go rep Saquon Barkley. Um, but yeah, I haven't worn it as much as I thought I hoped I would. I love the jersey. I really do. But in hindsight, yeah, maybe, maybe it wasn't worth $80 to wear a handful of times. Maybe I should just get it framed or something. I got an idea for you. So we've established that you, if you were to resell that jersey, would also be like 20, 30 bucks, right? So the odd that you basically are never going to get return on investment, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fitted now for me. Which right. like I, I like it and I, I want to keep it because I just like having it. You know, I, I I don't know. That's that's kind of the thing about jerseys is you just want to be able to play that card at one given moment. And yep. and I guess this is my moment of being able to play my, my Saquon card. So uh I don't know about your fitness right now, but whenever you feel like you're in the zone, you know, post baby and all that, you feel like you're at a good body makeup, I would wear that to the gym. I would wear that as a pump cover because Saquon swole. I think that would be fire because you want to, you know, you feel kind of built, you know what I'm saying? So you could, well, I wouldn't work out in it, 
But walk that in there, you know what I'm saying? Have your shirt, your workout shirt under it. And then boom, when you go to leave, you'll throw your towel on, throw that on over it, under it. Doesn't matter because you, again, you're not going to get return on investment. So you might as well have fun with it It where it is a pump cover. That's what I do. One minor issue. Hmm. The workout, the my, my gym is my garage. It, it has mm-hmm. been my garage because I, I got workout equipment during COVID, have not had a gym membership since early 2020. And that's not like, oh, I'm afraid to go back to the gym or anything like that. No, I'm just, I've built my garage into, into my gym. And so wearing a Saquon Barkley jersey in my garage while doing leg From day. your house to your garage. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. How about another idea? Wear it to the beach. Same concept. Take it off when it's time to like get in the water and stuff. Just be looking straight. Because he's swole. That's the thing about Saquon. That's a really cool, like, I'm a fit dude jersey. It's not a bad idea. The only issue is that getting sand on this makes me a little bit worried. Makes okay. me a little, a little bit. I, I still want to like protect it, and I, I kind of want to keep it nice and stuff. Um, beach is usually hot. It's kind of hot for a football jersey. You no, know, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a basketball jersey at the beach guy. I'm, a, I'm a tank at the beach type guy. That's the perfect setting okay. for it. I don't know that the Saquon jersey kind of fits my my aesthetic of of what I would want and if I would be all worried about like getting it wet or getting sandy. I don't know. I I feel like I'd be skittish there too. I, I'm realizing I just have very few places that I could actually wear this. Yeah. No. I, that see that's the thing. I, like I said, Saquon's a little bit interesting because he's a throwback one too. So he that I do actually support that per Lauren's gonna hate me by the end of this. I do actually support that purchase because I because I, I, it's a throwback jersey. So you could wear that jersey and it's not sad because he wore that specific one game, two game jersey, and that was a moment in history. It's not like here's an everyday Giants jersey that makes me sad he was traded. It's like a you know, uh like 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 a late career, like uh like a champ Bailey jersey late in his career. It's like yeah, he played there, you know, like Something like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's kind of the appeal. I mean, the 90s Giants jerseys are second to me. So, so Those, yeah. Th- that, that is like a top two or three football jersey for me. I would put the Bucks creamsicle jerseys and the Seahawks throwbacks in there. It, they're all that in is that your group. top three of it. No, what? I <laughs> that's the most chaotic top three of NFL jerseys. I've okay, I put the Oilers. I put the Oilers in that. The, okay. Like the ones that they brought back, even though it's like, hey, it's not really their franchise anymore and they probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, yeah. I put the Oilers in that. Yeah, those are, those are probably the, the four, the, the core four of NFL jerseys, if you will. There you go. Yeah, I think the Chargers is number one. I, I think their brand is so one. sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, weirdly, like, I might. I might be in the mind. I think the Cal- the Cowboys jerseys jerseys are sick. I think that's why they have been so successful at getting all these bandwagon fans is that their look when they're good fire. Um, but you know, I might. I, that's one of those that's like I can't say Alabama's jerseys look cool because they just represent beaten you know or or this evil empire, which is what the Cowboys are minus the success. So, I I I am a believer that the the nineties jerseys across pretty much all sports. Maybe with the exception of hockey, hockey had some pretty rough looks in the '90s. If you actually yeah. kind of like go back and dig into it, um, I watched Once Upon a Time in, in Anaheim, the 360 production on ESPN. I watched that uh, the other day. Really, really good. Connected a lot of dots for me. Got into some '90s NHL nostalgia that I don't really have, but I pretended like I had. Um, but yeah, I think '90s NFL jerseys were excellent, absolutely excellent. And I am so frustrated. 
that my team does not have like a throwback. It's just more of the same. That's just all of the Chicago franchises, which with the exception of like some of the White Sox jerseys, which even then it's still pretty much the same. Um, yeah, that's it's it's really rough. So I, I've always been envious of those other franchises that have like a true throwback look. And pro sports is different than college sports mm-hmm. in that way, I think. But um, yeah, man, I look, I don't think I'm getting a lot of pushback on my core four. I think that's a pretty solid core four universally. I, I will say too, um, and my criteria is obviously all over the place too. I think the Eagles have two really strong. I think Eagles are the good. black ones are strong. Yep. And I think the the Kelly Green the, the bright ones are cool too. Um, yeah, the NFL has some really cool branding. Even when you look at the Vikings slash Rams and like the horns they have, I think that's pretty cool. But Rams yeah, is good I think, too. I think, yeah, I, whenever you do something like even like like this is slightly, but like Michigan, I think Michigan's are fire because when you are the only school or the only team to do something like that, it's it's so sick to me. But yes, I love Saquon. I think I would go to bat for that. I would I I would wear that casually as a bit because he's so swole. <laughs> If I uh, if I don't find use for this in a few years or something like that, maybe I'll just send it to Moorhead and just be like, "Hey, just there you go. You can just put this in your office, get a frame for it or something, and have Saquon when sign it." Starts, it. There you go. That would when actually be a really fun warm, use for it. Yeah. When it starts getting warm, you can just go to Top Golf by yourself and just shag, just hit the crap out of some balls. Be like this guy's locked in. This guy's doing business. Or maybe have like a Bluetooth on, just so no one knows what you're doing. Keep them guessing. You know. That's a good idea. Maybe wear, wear some of the shorter shorts, pretend like I just came off of leg day and like I'm just trying to embody my inner Saquon and everything that I do. Yep. Yeah. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can see all of our great jerseys. All of our great jerseys, by the way. Um, voting. We had voting the other day for round two. Uh, round two, the winner is your Dikembe Mutombo jersey. So congratulations. You have two that have moved on to the next round already. Uh, but yes, yeah, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Set Down South, at CJ Rivera, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.